Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With everyone looking to shrink their bill these days, Dunn Stores gives you new ways to save on your shop with double savers. First, you'll save in the aisles when you fill your basket with fantastic low prices across thousands of great products. Then, you'll save again at the till with our 5 off 25 grocery voucher. Shrink your bill with Double Savers, new from Dunn Stores. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next in-store grocery shop of €25 or more. When the war on drugs in the United States was in full force during the Nixon and Reagan presidencies, a few people did not want to recognize that this policy was deeply rooted in racism. Coincidentally, but perhaps not that coincidentally, it was also and still remains anti-poor. Most poor neighborhoods with predominantly black and brown populations are regularly demonized, portrayed as dangerous, profiled and disproportionately patrolled and harassed by the police. Meanwhile, rich people, mostly white, who can be as prolific in drug trafficking or consumption, are rarely profiled and harassed by the police compared to others. And this, amongst other things, remains the legacy of the war on drugs that has become a global movement. Funny enough, the drug problem seems to be getting worse, and in this war, drugs seem to be winning. The losers of the war, however, are not the governments or world leaders or the big drug lords. The losers have always been the poor and marginalized communities. Now, when Rodrigo Duterte decided to make the war on drugs his unique selling point as a presidential for the 2016 Philippine elections, quite a few people were pleased, thinking this would become some sort of miracle cure where big drug busts would be made every day. But they thought wrong. Instead, we bore witness to six years of brutal killings of mostly poor people and especially children. It was clear that the government had no interest in actually going after the big fishes, the drug lords, and it had no interest in making drug addiction a mental health problem instead of a criminal law problem. And so children kept dying, leaving devastated families in the wake of police and vigilante killings. One such case caught the attention of the international community and has since then become a watershed moment that exposed the Duterte government and the real cost of the war on drugs. This is the case of Kian de los Santos.
Mabuhay Lagim fam. Welcome back to a new episode of Lagim, a Filipino true crime podcast. After a bit of a hiatus owing to my COVID sickness, I am back with four more episodes left in this current season. So I hope you're ready. As always, if you want to have ad-free early access to my regular episodes, please subscribe to my Patreon. By subscribing to my Patreon, you'll be greatly helping me with keeping this podcast going. You can also make donations through buymecoffee.com. Both Patreon and buymecoffee.com links are in the show notes. If you want to remain updated about the podcast, please consider following me on all my social media accounts like Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and even TikTok. All the links are in the show notes. As always, details in this case may be triggering for some people, so please take care of yourself whilst listening. He fought back. That was the main reason given by the police on the 20th of August 2017, after news of a killing of a 17-year-old boy from Kaloocan broke out. The story seemed straight out of some badly written cop drama. PO3 Arne Oares stated that it was around 8.45 in the evening on the 16th of August when 11 police officers from the Caloocan Police Community Precinct were conducting an anti-drug and anti-crime operation at Block 7 Riverside in Barangay 150. According to them, they were in pursuit of some individuals in that area. The police officers spread out to cover more ground. One group headed for a basketball court and others looked for possible suspects in the smaller escanitas or narrow passages. Oares and his small group happened upon several men or boys who supposedly ran away after noticing that something was going on in their neighborhood. The police gave chase, then identified themselves as police officers, but to no avail. The individuals they were chasing did not stop and continued to run away. Eventually, Oares said his group reached a, quote, narrow road blocked by a concrete fence bordering Valenzuela City by Tulahan River, end of quote. This was when shots were fired from their left side. Oares's group ducked for protection, but also supposedly managed to spot who the shooter was. Oares gave chase again and was in pursuit of the shooter. Seconds later, he said he was prompted to fire back to stop the shooter from further shooting at them or anyone else. The shooter was hit and was dead on the spot. This supposed shooter was 17-year-old Kian de los Santos. It is easy to lose sight of who the victim was in any coverage of a story, even in such a prominent case. In my research, I think I only found one or two good articles that really humanized Kian enough to make him relatable to average Filipinos. A shame, really, if you ask me. He was one of four children of Saldi and Lorenza de los Santos. He loved junk food and watching videos on his phone, a typical teenager, you know. He diligently helped his father open up their Sari Sari store every morning, and he'd stay there until about noon before handing over the store to his dad. He would head to school where he was in grade 11 and go back home to help his dad close the store again. 
Once homework and dinner were over, he would take a stroll around the neighborhood and chat with neighbors and friends before heading back home. His parents attested that he was never the kind of son to give them trouble. He walked the straight and narrow and had ambitions of becoming a police officer himself. The irony of it all. Kian's mother was an OFW just before the events of 2017. Despite that and despite having a Sari Sari store, the family lived a humble life. They all slept beside each other in one room at home. No one had their own room. So the family perhaps barely scraped by, but they were known to be good people. Kian was known to be a helpful person, never getting into trouble at school or causing trouble at home for that matter. In one article, an old lady who was a customer of the family's Sari Sari store remembered fondly how Kian would always sharpen the pencil she'd purchase. These little acts of kindness came naturally for Kian, apparently. So, it was all the more bewildering when, on the night of the 16th of August, 2017, Saldi de los Santos received a phone call from his own brother about Kian being in trouble with the police. The father of four was confused. He just sent Kian a text message not too long ago, telling him to be careful. Now, we have heard the PNP's version of events at the beginning, but quite quickly that version was put into question when witnesses and CCTV footage of that area where Kian was killed revealed a vastly different story. I have watched this short footage myself. The video that is now available on Rappler's YouTube account is only a minute and a half long, but shows how a male figure, now identified as Kian, was flanked to his left and right and then dragged across a basketball court. I could see at least three or four civilian witnesses who saw how Kian or this person was taken by the police in the few seconds after the video started. The video then shows how Kian and the police officers were followed by at least one more person, presumably also a police officer, then disappears from the camera's view. As they disappear, a few more witnesses come into view. The video does not show how Kian was killed, but what it does show was that there was no chase or exchange of fire as a means to incapacitate some rogue shooter. It shows a gunless kid being dragged by police officers, probably twice his size, and then killed off camera. When the CCTV footage was made public, it placed the police and the government in a tight spot immediately. Witnesses who later supplemented the details found in the video would say that Kian was actually handed a gun and asked to shoot it twice and run away with it. When he did, he was shot multiple times. It seemed to a lot of people that Kian was made to look like he was running away or shooting at the police. Kian's body was found with a gun in his left hand. This was concerning because Kian was right-handed. If he was really shooting at the police... Why shoot with your non-dominant hand? (music) 
Now, after this revelation, it did not take long for Malacanang and the police to come out with what looked like an attempt at damage control. The palace said the many drug raids that took place in Bulacan and Metro Manila on the same day as Kian's death were not reckless operations despite the high death tolls. All in all, 32 people were killed within a 24-hour time period in Bulacan and 25 people lost their lives in the same time period in Metro Manila. When it was pointed out by the media that this operation seemed to have only targeted poor communities where the big drug lords and suppliers were and are most definitely not living in, the presidential spokesperson Ernesto Abelia in a press conference stated that it was necessary to go after street-level drug pushers as well in order to degrade the community-based retail's distribution network making the drug trade possible. This would have been an okay logic if there was a visible and active effort to actually go after the main sources of said drug trade, even if it means branching out internationally. But we did not hear much of that then in 2017, nor now that the Duterte presidency is over. In that same press conference, Abelia reassured the press and the public that if the police officers in Kian's case were deemed to have abused their powers, then they needed to suffer the consequences. Meanwhile, the president seemed rather proud after hearing about the high death toll in both raids, commending the police and telling them that they did a good job. In Caloocan, meanwhile, a family was grieving and feeling confused by how their life had suddenly taken this drastic and ugly turn. As mentioned before, Kian's mom was an overseas Filipino worker, or OFW, at the time of Kian's death. It did not take long until news of her son's death reached her through her daughter. She told reporters much later after touching down in Manila that she was chatting with her son the night before his death, that they were just talking about how Kian wanted a bicycle and how excited he was about it. Her many interviews showed a mother who was grieving whilst trying to contain a type of anger that only a mother can feel over the untimely death of her son. The sadness, the disbelief, the deep longing for justice were all palpable. She stood and still stands by what many had already said about Kian, that he was innocent, and the only reason he was dead was because he was poor and at the wrong place at the wrong time. Around the time of Lorenza's first interview, a few more details had been made known to the public and the press. The police apparently believed that Kian specifically ran drugs for a drug dealer named Neneng Escopino. They also initially claimed that Kian was on some sort of watch list of theirs, but then later admitted that this was not the case at all. They lied. Meanwhile, friends of Kian, who spoke under condition of anonymity, admitted that they saw how Kian was apprehended by two men in black civilian clothing. These men patted down Kian, then punched him repeatedly in the stomach. One of the friends then stated how Kian's face was then covered and how he was dragged by at least three men. These friends also confirmed what other witnesses already told the media a few days earlier about how Kian was essentially set up and then killed. 
As a result, three police officers and their superior were suspended from duty, namely Police Community Precinct 7 Commander Armor Cerillo and the police officers Arnel Oares, Jeremias Pereda, and Jerwin Cruz. Then Philippine National Police Director General Bato de la Rosa stated that allegations against these officers would be investigated immediately. As for Kian's mother, Lorenza, the suspension was not enough. Even though it was clear the suspension was done whilst the matter was still being investigated, it was also clear from Lorenza's reaction and statements that she wanted to see the officers prosecuted and sentenced for what they had allegedly done to her son. However, not soon after the officers involved in the shootout were suspended, the machinery in support of the war on drugs in the Philippines started working its magic to specifically cast doubt on Kian's believed innocence. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Caloocan City Prosecutor Darwin Cañete was prominently quoted on the 20th of August that it was, quote, too far-fetched that Kian was totally innocent. He told the Philippine Daily Inquirer, quote, I am not saying they did not kill the kid. The police should be held accountable if ever it is a proven EJK or extrajudicial killing. But making the kid super innocent, I'm not buying it. End of quote. Whilst I always support a healthy dose of skepticism anywhere, it is worrying to me that a public official and a prosecutor, no less, someone who could potentially be trying a case against the suspended police officers, had already seemingly made up his mind about the dead person in this case. It does not really spell impartial, does it? Now, sure, I understand that a prosecutor is not necessarily impartial, as they are lawyers for the Republic, but any overt display of bias in a matter that could potentially become a case in their own jurisdiction seems to be a rather misguided move altogether. But of course, I digress. But here's the kicker. Cañete was in fact involved in the case and he was not some random small-time prosecutor who wanted some 15 seconds of fame. In fact, he said that he was called out an hour after the incident in Caloocan and shared with the media afterwards that as he was observing the crime scene in his capacity as a prosecutor of Caloocan, he noticed skin markings on Kian, which he believed to be caused by shabu sachets being sort of pressed upon the skin or lodged in between body parts so as to cause such imprints just before the shooting. 
He was rather resolute in his theorizing that surely no police officer that night could have shot Kian and or implanted shabu sachets so as to make it appear that Kian was guilty. He must have truly had the shabu sachets with him and he must have truly shot at the police who then shot back at him in self-defense. Now, before I continue, a few clarifications and perhaps a rather angry opinion. Shabu is a sort of street-sold methamphetamine mix that is rather popular in the Philippines amongst drug users. On top of being highly addictive, of course, it is truly dangerous as a drug due to its horrific cognitive effects on the user. Now, secondly, I take real issue with a prosecutor who, pardon my French, ran his mouth about the crime scene way before any forensic experts or medical legal officer could give their reports on what could be or what could not be seen on Kian's body. To me, there is no doubt that Cañete was hell-bent on skewing the public's opinion against Kian even before the real experts could give their take on the matter and even before any court proceedings could be started. Now, the prosecutor further theorized that since the police officers involved were new officers, surely it could not have been their goal to sabotage their own career so early already. When asked about the CCTV footage, Cañete seemed to have wanted to cast doubt on who really was on the footage. He urged that the footage be enhanced. Mr. Cañete seemed to have been very comfortable drawing inferences from just about everything he saw during a visual examination of the crime scene back when Kian was found dead, but when confronted with a substantial piece of evidence such as the video footage, he advocated for further testing of the evidence and due diligence. Seems a bit ironic, wouldn't you say? In an earlier comment on Facebook, he also seemed to have encouraged netizens to calm down and wait until the commencement of the Senate hearing that started on the 22nd of August, where, according to him, the police officers would be able to present their side of the story. It is baffling to me that he asked for patience and the benefit of the doubt for the police officers, but not for the possibility that Kian may be innocent. Now, I would be remiss if I did not tell you, though, that Cañete is a proud Duterte supporter who made it somehow a priority at that time to lambaste the media's coverage of Kian's death. You may also remember Cañete for posting about how, quote-unquote, yellow forces who were critical of former President Duterte should be killed back in the day. Although I do not want to focus too much on this person anymore since he was not the only one who pushed the narrative that Kian was a drug runner without presenting solid evidence first, especially in those first days after Kian's death, I wanted to emphasize how dangerous it is to have a legal advocate like him working for the state whose mandate it is to represent the public's interest and to apply the letter of the law, act like like some sort of personal lawyer and spin doctor for the former president and his policies. Somebody should have read him his job description back to him. Perhaps he forgot.
Now, whilst the media, the public and the netizens were battling it out online and offline, gradually making Kian's death the very political matter that it became to be, we would soon be given more news and this time it was about Kian's autopsy. At Kian's family's request, an autopsy was conducted by the public attorney's office on the 20th of August. This, of course, all came hot on the heels of the Justice Department ordering the NBI or National Bureau of Investigation to investigate the shootout and Kian's death. Finally, there was some movement in Kian's case. The results of the autopsy were published the next day, the 21st of August. According to the forensic team headed by Dr. Erwin Erfe, Kian was shot three times. The first bullet entered his back, the second one just behind his left ear, and the third one inside his left ear. Both of these last two wounds exited at the right side of Kian's head. Dr. Erfe also concluded that the first and second shots were fired whilst Kian was on the ground, most likely as he was face down. He theorized that the shooter would likely have stood near Kian's feet. Dr. Erfe could not conclusively say if all three shots were fired by the same person, but he did confirm that all bullets were from a 9mm firearm. These revelations were damning. It pointed to an intentional killing, not a killing that resulted from self-defense. When you picture what Dr. Erfe had described, it is actually chilling to think that Kian was essentially executed in cold blood. Dr. Erfe added that he could not see any evidence that would back up the story about Kian fighting back. Kian's body showed neither bruises or contusions, which the medical legal team took as a sign that he could not have fought back at all. They did find evidence that Kian was repeatedly punched in the gut, which was consistent with some of the witness statements. Following these damning autopsy results, Kian's family pleaded with the public attorney's office to lay charges on the police officers believed to be responsible for Kian's death. As it happened, PAO Chief Persida Rueda Acosta confirmed that their office was already preparing complaints to be filed against the police officers involved in the Kalookan shootout. Evidence was being gathered already. The news around Kian was obviously gathering momentum with each passing minute. Eventually, it was announced that the Criminal Investigation and Detection Group, or CIDG, was ordered to look into Kian's case as well. Surprisingly enough, PNP Director General Bato de la Rosa was said to have been dismayed by what went down in Caloocan. Of course, this can be interpreted many ways. Was he dismayed that Kian was killed, or was he dismayed that his killing had not now caused such an uproar that it put a damper on all future anti-drug raids operations. I doubt it actually had, given the many other shootouts we then heard about in subsequent years. Needless to say, with De La Rosa's dismay, also came an investigation by the PNP Internal Affairs Service. I will come back to this later on. 
Now, a couple of other things took place on or around the 20th of August. Whilst then-Justice Secretary Vitaliano Aguirre was considering enlisting Kian's relatives and other witnesses in the Justice Department's Witness Protection Program, Senator Risa Onteveros had taken it upon herself to provide protection to some alleged witnesses already. It is my understanding that these witnesses were given refuge in the Senator's office. Anteveros did not give any details at that time as to how many or who these witnesses were, giving the impression that the situation was precarious and volatile at best. What we did learn from the senator was that the witnesses she did harbor in her office were all ready to face the Senate committee allocated to conduct a probe into Kian's death and the shootout in general. The senator called upon her fellow lawmakers to conduct an impartial probe, potentially hinting at the last probe into extrajudicial killings the previous year in October, where the Senate found that neither Duterte nor the state in general sponsored the EJ case at that time. I think what we were getting from Anteveros was a sense of urgency and desperation, knowing that every second counted in both protecting the witnesses and getting the truth out there so that justice could be served. I just kept thinking how much someone like Anteveros knew or knows about these types of cases that in the end she took it upon herself to sequester the witnesses in her office instead of trusting anyone else, let alone the justice. Justice Department or the police to protect these witnesses. By the 23rd of August, something interesting happened. As it turned out, the PNP also conducted their own autopsy on Kian. Now, I am basing the following bit on two articles published on two different days, and I could not for the life of me understand why there were two people involved in sharing the information about the autopsy results that seemed to slightly differ from one day to the next. As I said, on the 23rd of August, PNP Crime Lab Medical Legal Officer Dr. Jane Monson shared her findings in a press briefing. Her forensic team did not deny that there were gunshots to the left side of Kian's head. They conceded that the two bullets to Kian's left ear were shot downwards, but instead of saying outright that Kian was shot whilst facing down or whilst kneeling, perhaps, most definitely facing away from from his shooter or shooters, Monson kept it general by saying that he was shot from a distance of more than 60 centimeters away from the tip of the barrel. This is not a great distance, obviously. The only finding that differed from the PAO autopsy was that the PNP autopsy did not agree that there was ever any other gunshot wound anywhere else on Kian's body, let alone in his back, as stated by by Dr. Erfe from the PAO autopsy. Now, the next day on the 24th of August, this time in front of senators during the official start of the Senate's probe into Kian's case, a Jocelyn Cruz from the Northern Police Crime Lab stated outright that Kian was in fact kneeling face down when he was shot. This was more similar to the PAO autopsy findings. 
Jocelyn Cruz also reiterated that two shots entered Kian's left side of the head and exited to the right. She also agreed that the shooter must have stood at least two feet away from Kian. As with the finding of Dr. Monson, Jocelyn Cruz also denied that Kian had a bullet wound in his back or anywhere else in his torso for that matter. Now, whilst I can see how a bullet wound in the back would prove even more that Kian was not an aggressor shooting at the police and was definitely not facing them, therefore not posing any threat at all, I think the head injuries are sufficient in telling that story. When then-Senator Bam Aquino asked Bato de la Rosa if there were any instances when shooting a suspect who was faced down and kneeling was justified, de la Rosa said no. He stated, quote, Kung nakaluhod yan si Kian at nakatalikod tapos babarilin mo, e kriminal ka, murderer ka, hindi ka law enforcer. In English, if Kian was kneeling and you shoot him, you're already a criminal, a murderer, not a law enforcer. End of quote. Again, this is not me discounting any possible further wounds sustained to Kian's back, but for the purpose of proving that he was essentially executed, being shot in a such helpless position would suffice to bring murder charges against the police, in my opinion. And this was exactly where this was all headed. On the 25th of August, Kian's parents, as represented by the public attorney's office, finally filed murder and torture complaints against the Caloocan police officers who conducted the anti-drug raid that led to Kian's death. One immediate concern after the complaints were filed was the perceived lack of impartiality of then-Justice Secretary Aguirre himself. You see, some days before the filing, Vitaliano Aguirre was quoted saying a few problematic things that are, I think, unbecoming of a person in his position. He first stated that Kian's death was collateral damage, a rather callous thing to say prematurely or at all. He then dismissed the hubbub around Kian's death as politicizing his death or blowing it out of proportion as if to say, nothing to see here, folks. Senator Onteveros therefore urged the Justice Secretary to excuse himself from all investigations as the mere appearance of his involvement may give the impression of a biased judicial process. Then-Senator Franklin Drelon, in the same vein, also urged the DOJ to allow the ombudsman to handle the preliminary investigation of Kian's case, believing that Aguirre was biased. Now, for me personally, a big red flag from Aguirre was his tendency to deflect the issues raised in Kian's case and to then go on a whataboutism rant. In one Senate hearing, Aguirre demanded to know from human rights groups why they were not crying out whenever a drug addict kills or rapes someone, citing a few cases out of Bulacan. He was convinced that critics of Duterte were just piggyback on Kian's case in order to discredit the administration.
let me pause here for a second because this kind of reasoning by Aguirre has been deployed over and over again during the Duterte government and is now also being used by Marcos Jr. supporters. What Aguirre was doing there is offering up a logical fallacy, a straw man fallacy. Just because the human rights groups and everybody else who saw what happened to Kian were calling for action and a proper judicial process to investigate the matter did not mean and never meant they never cared about killings and rapes perpetrated by proven or known drug addicts. We can care for several things at the same time. Several things can be true at the same time. I have observed time and time again that those who try to defend human rights and civil liberties get roped into such useless arguments with pro-Duterte and pro-Marcos supporters, losing their train of thought, losing their cool and patience, and walking into the trap made exactly for them. My personal approach when I encounter such moments is not to even react at all. I cannot change their minds at that moment and they cannot change mine. So I simply see the futility in all of it and choose to not go into that battle. Why would I? Anyway. As a response to Aguirre, Senator Drelon said the following, quote, In Bulacan, it is the duty of the police officer to arrest the culprit, who allegedly is a drug addict. In the particular case of Kian, it is the state agents themselves who took the life of a 17-year-old boy, and I hope you see the difference there. End of quote. Of Aguirre's bias, Drilon further said, quote, An ordinary mind would readily conclude you are not impartial anymore insofar as investigation is concerned. Talaga pong ang bias nyo, your bias really, is so obvious. Your bias to protect the policeman is so obvious. I don't see any indication that you are trying to seek a neutral path here. End of quote. When asked if Aguirre was willing to transfer the case over to the ombudsman, Aguirre appeared unwilling, saying that by doing so, it would make the Justice Department appear incapable of carrying out an impartial probe. Additionally, Aguirre also insisted that any state witnesses in Senator Ontiveros' custody should be turned over to the DOJ so that they could be admitted to the Witness Protection Program. He insisted that any credibility the witnesses may have would be tainted should they choose to stay with Ontiveros since she was and remains a vocal critic of Duterte and his war on drugs. Obviously, this was met with suspicion by Ontiveros. No one wanted to trust anybody because the stakes were high to either get this case junked or to see this case succeed. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Guillén de los Santos was finally laid to rest on the 26th of August. It was difficult to keep the funeral a family affair when his death had become so polarizing, so political and so important. In the end, hundreds of people attended the funeral to pay their respects to the 17-year-old who was remembered as kind and polite. Naturally, the people who walked with Kian's family from his parish in Caloacan City to the La Loma Cemetery were also protesters who held up banners in support of Kian and his family. People knew that this was so much bigger than them. Part of the Balintawak area along Edsa was temporarily closed up for the procession. Passing vehicles even honked their horns to join the protest and to show their support for Kian. Two days later, instead of resting or letting themselves grieve some more in private, the parents insisted on having a meeting with the president himself. He obliged and promised that whoever killed Kian would be brought to justice. I'm not sure how to feel about this meeting. We know that Kian's parents felt better after meeting the former president and felt that their case was in good hands as President Duterte provided reassurances. If you've lost someone in such a brutal way, you take comfort wherever and whenever you can. If it made Kian's parents feel better to meet Duterte, to tell the public to stop politicizing their son's death, then that is all valid and none of our business. I nevertheless cannot help but think that the president's PR team recommended that this meeting took place to further damage control and to keep appearances, seeing as the drug war continued and would continue to have casualties around that time and thereafter. To have the media see that Duterte was sympathetic to Saldi and Lorenza de los Santos softened the media's glare on him, even for just a minute. Personally, this meeting leaves a very bad taste in my mouth because although I understand, as I already said, that the parents asked for this meeting themselves, it feels like they were being used not only potentially by the president's PR team, but also those representing them. A few people believed that both the PAO or public attorney's office and the volunteers against crime and corruption were using the parents to further their own agenda agendas and the careers of those who were guiding the De Los Santos family day in and day out during those crazy times following Kian's death. Nevertheless, the meeting with the president did not stop other government agencies from pushing right ahead with their own thing. The office of the ombudsman announced that despite the DOJ's refusal to hand the reins to them in investigating Kian's case, the ombudsman would still start its own probe. Just a reminder here, though, the ombudsman's investigation was really more of a fact-finding mission. Senator Drillon explained that the ombudsman normally had concurrent jurisdiction insofar as Kian's death was concerned, but because there was an agreement between the DOJ and the ombudsman's office, the DOJ would be assuming jurisdiction. 
Now, I would like to imagine that Aguirre may have felt a tinge of irritation at learning that the ombudsman was conducting a fact-finding mission, but at least he made the best of his day that day. He granted Kian's parents state protection for the duration of all the investigations going on at that time. This took place after both Saldi and Lorenza de los Santos went to the DOJ to request protection and apply for admission into the Witness Protection Program. This request was granted immediately. Aguirre saw this, of course, as an opportunity to stick it to the critics, saying that the criticisms hurled at him about him being biased were, of course, rubbish, ill-willed and ill-informed. Just before the month of August ended in 2017, the National Bureau of Investigation announced that their investigation also showed how Kian's death was a case of intentional killing. The NBI saw it fit to file a complaint for murder and planting of evidence against the police officers involved. By September 4th, the police officers suffered yet another blow when the Integrated Bar of the Philippines filed administrative and criminal complaints against them. Furthermore, do you remember the PNP Internal Affairs Services I mentioned earlier? Well, they too came along and announced that there was probable cause to press charges against its own officers after they had found serious irregularities in the drug raid that led to Kian's death. These irregularities were as follows. Grave misconduct owing to the illegal arrest and killing of Kian de los Santos. Violation of police operational procedure and command responsibility and serious neglect of duty. And although this was fine and good, what the public and media really wanted to see was the DOJ finally commencing their own investigations. This did not happen until mid-September and only ended by the end of October. In addition to the officers initially charged in August, the DOJ charged 12 more officers with the murder and torture of Kian. These 12 officers, plus the others, had to be given their own opportunity to submit their defense, so that took time to all play out as well. Now, I will just give you the info here instead of later, but these additional suspects would never actually become defendants. As we will hear later, the case ultimately focused on the officers who were accused of Kian's death very early on in August. Now, moving on in our timeline, despite the probe of the DOJ ending in October 2017, it was not until the end of January 2018 that the prosecution panel at the DOJ decided to indict three officers and one civilian for murder. Acting Prosecutor General Jorge Catalan stated the following, quote, they're being charged for murder because treachery was found to be present. Because the sudden and unexpected attack on the hapless victim Kian was clear and convincing. End of quote. 
A week later, orders for the arrest of these four individuals were approved by the Caloocan City Regional Trial Court. Naturally, the parties needed to prepare for the incoming criminal proceedings, so no big news headlines about the case came out until July 2018, when a couple of motions by the defense were denied by the presiding judge, Judge Rodolfo Asusena. Of course, the defense did not take the case against them for granted and was preparing profusely. By August 23, 2018, one of the police officers argued in court that there was no definitive way to tell that it was Kian who was dragged across the basketball court that night as shown in the CCTV footage. Jeremias Pereda sought to invalidate the accounts of eyewitnesses as well who supplemented the evidence provided by that video. A week later, this denial was propped up by yet another accused, Jerwin Cruz, who told the court that the person seen being dragged in the video footage was in fact a police asset or informant and not Kian. Funny enough, these arguments were not put forward earlier on after Kian died. It became quickly obvious to the spectators of this court case that the defendants were not taking this criminal case against them lying down. The attempt to inject reasonable doubt was laudable. The court heard and considered these attempts and the case presented by the prosecution as well, of course. After both the prosecution and defense rested, the Caloocan RTC concluded the trial and announced that a judgment would be ready by the end of November. There was a lot of pressure on this court to give a detailed and watertight court decision, knowing that the defendants would probably gun for an appeal immediately after. And so, by the 29th of November 2018, Judge Rodolfo Asusena found the three Caloocan police officers, Oares, Pereda, and Cruz, guilty of murder. They were sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison without the possibility of parole. The three officers were also ordered to pay Kian's family 100,000 pesos in civil indemnity, 100,000 pesos in moral damages, 45,000 pesos in actual damages, and 100,000 pesos in exemplary damages. The three officers were not found guilty of planting firearms and drugs, something that according to the court, the prosecution failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Court reporters wrote that as soon as the guilty verdict was handed down, a cry could be heard from the defense's side. This was believed to be from one of the defendant's girlfriends. Cruz was also seen crying. The three convicted officers were then taken into custody after refusing to make a statement of any kind. The court in its 35-page decision stated the following, quote, the court commiserates with our policemen who regularly thrust their lives in zones of danger in order to maintain peace and order and acknowledges the apprehension faced by their families whenever they go on duty. 
but the use of unnecessary force or wanton violence is not justified when the fulfillment of their duty as law enforcers can be affected otherwise. A shoot-first, think-later attitude can never be countenanced in a civilized society. End of quote. One could argue that such a ruling by the court could put the police officers who are currently on duty in a tricky position in which they do not know if shooting potential suspects in self-defense would still afford them safety from judicial consequences. I would say that in theory this could be a problem, but we know on the ground that the conviction of three out of four defendants in Kian's case did not really stop other officers around the country from shooting first and thinking later with devastating effects in the last six years. We are approaching the fifth year anniversary of Kean's death soon. And whilst many view the convictions of the three police officers as a triumph of justice and accountability, the triumph rests uneasy. Now that Duterte has concluded his presidency, we are left with at least 20,000 deaths related to his war on drugs. Those that made it to the courts are still languishing because they did not get the kind of media exposure that Kian's case got. Sometimes it feels that Kian's death did very little. The killings continued and still continue even after Duterte's term. The courts are overloaded by the few cases they picked up. The police largely still act with impunity. The Commission on Human Rights has been deprived of much-needed funding and is largely left out of investigations into these types of cases, deliberately. It has been demonized and villainized beyond anything I've ever seen in any country. And so, even though we know that we need our top human rights watchdog, it feels like it cannot really fulfill that role fully without any money and without any support, both from the government and the public. But let me provide you with a different perspective here. Kian's death is very much not in vain. It started a national and international conversation that has never really stopped. People are aware, people are more unwilling to accept that the bodies that are found lifeless on the streets of the Philippines at night are deserving of their fate. A lot of people have pushed back, and although this is always going to be an uphill battle, Filipinos know that this is not just a Filipino issue anymore. Last year, the International Criminal Court was urged by local civil rights watchdog Karapatan to listen and act on the pleas of the families who lost loved ones in the drug war. ICC Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan is seeking to reopen an investigation into killings and other suspected human rights abuses during Duterte's presidency and his war on drugs. This probe was initially started but then suspended last November, but it is now being continued. 
Despite Duterte pulling the country out of the ICC in 2018, and despite stating that his government would not cooperate with any ICC investigation, this supranational court still has jurisdiction to investigate crimes committed whilst the Philippines was a member up until 2019. They will have a lot to work with. Now, whether this investigation becomes successful and evolves into criminal proceedings, time can only tell. It could result in something huge and momentous, and it can also fail epically, but at the very least, it will bring this dark era in Philippine history to the fore of world history and will hopefully serve as a lesson to the current president and any leaders seeking to further scapegoat poor communities whilst letting the big, rich drug lords off the hook. As for Kian, may we all remember him as the good person and faithful friend his loved ones described him to be. May he be remembered as that kid who would suddenly break into a dance when with friends. That boy who asked his kuya to help him write a love song. That neighbor who always had a punchline to his jokes and anecdotes. The student who dared to cut class only one time and never again. The classmate who was the kenkoi or the clown of the group. The barcada who would break into rap songs and called it a sound trip. The son who was raised to be God-fearing, honest, and helpful. The young man who remained hopeful, full of dreams and big ambitions. Rest in peace, young Kian. Lagim fam, it is good to be back. My voice is still not really sounding normal, but I guess it will have to do at the moment. Thank you again for listening to this new episode. I've been wanting to cover Kian's case for ages now, and I hope I did his case justice. Now, let us remember that his case is the exception because so many more cases are out there and they have not seen the inside of a courtroom even after all these years. Now, if you found this episode and my podcast interesting, make sure to support me by subscribing to my Patreon account or by donating to my buymecoffee.com account. Both links are in the show notes. As for the affiliate links that I have talked about in the past, I think some of them are actually broken, so my advice is to leave those out for now. I will make sure to investigate what is going on with those links. Make sure to follow me on social media, by the way, to stay updated. I am mostly on Instagram these days, but I do keep it interesting on Twitter, Facebook, and even TikTok. So just check the links in the show notes to follow me. Thank you again for being so patient whilst I am recovering from COVID. I really hope that was the first and last time I will ever have to suffer from that nasty virus because it was tough and no fun at all. Again, thank you very much. Take care and goodbye.
With everyone looking to shrink their bill these days, Dunn Stores gives you new ways to save on your shop with double savers. First, you'll save in the aisles when you fill your basket with fantastic low prices across thousands of great products. Then, you'll save again at the till with our 5 off 25 grocery voucher. Shrink your bill with double savers, new from Dunn Stores. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next in-store grocery shop of €25 Euro or more.